Hey, hey, and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash shade podcast to become a patron. Okay, so here we go. Episode three, press photos in conversation with The Guardian's art and culture correspondent, Lanry Bakary, and Head of Education at the South London Gallery, Kerry Robinson. Support for Shades Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach, not only to health, but also to our children's education, an education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Chloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris's co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shade does so brilliantly. So go to chloriscbd.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Okay, so episode three, press photos. Now, during the height of the pandemic, on Saturday the 13th of June 2020, a gathering of protesters congregated near Waterloo Station in London. On assignment there was photographer Dylan Martinez from the press group Reuters. He took a photo of a situation that unfolded there. It was of Patrick Hutchinson, a Black Lives Matter protester, as he carried an injured white male out of the crowds to safety. A Guardian report at the time named the injured person as Bryn Mayle, an ex-police officer who was among a group of football supporters who had travelled that day into London when the Black Lives Matter protests were due to take place. A fellow member of his football members group described Mayle as a patriotic Brit, England through and through. Make of that what you will. On the date of the recording, Hutchison has yet to receive any acknowledgement from Mail for helping him on that day. So in this episode, we look at the responses to this image and what it tells us about the state of, actually that's quite an apt term, about the state of affairs regarding how we talk about race today in the UK. So first up is Lanry Bakary, who talks to us about what changed behind the scenes in the press room at the Guardian newspaper as the Black Lives Matter uprisings gathered momentum, and how he took personal action to ensure that the stories were covered truthfully and respectfully, not only at the time of the protest, but also for future reporting. We cover a lot in this conversation. Sit back, enjoy. Enjoy. 
to start by asking a question that I'll be posing to all of my guests this season, actually, and it's about representation. Uh-huh. And I'm interested in the effects that our visual environment has on us throughout childhood and how it affects our developing sense of selves. So growing up, or when did you first experience yourself as being represented in the media? Ooh, that is a good question. I remember a big thing in our house was watching Desmond's. Yes. That was absolutely massive. And The Real McCoy as well. More The Real McCoy, actually, because it had there was more African influence in there. Desmond's, I just thought it was amazing. And the thing about that was like you get into school the next day and I grew up in a very like working class white area, but still the kids at my school would be going mental about it and be like, you know, doing impressions of pork pie, not in a negative, horrible way, but in like a, a kind of affectionate way. So like, I always remember that as a kid and yeah, that was, that was huge. I suppose I just remember seeing people like Ian Wright, you know, the footballer and I just been, I was kind of obsessed with him. I'm an, I'm an Everton fan. I don't support Arsenal, but like just this guy who just didn't seem to care about anything. He had a gold mm-hmm. tooth. He had Nike football boots. He had a pretty cool kit. He drove a nice car. He wore cool clothes. But like, I just remember Ian Wright. I was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. I love that. It's like, it really speaks of the times, doesn't it? And yeah, Ian Wright, I remember taking my nephew in the 90s to see a football match at Arsenal because he wanted to go and see Ian Wright. And yeah, he was from a single parent household and his mum's like, I'm just not doing it. So I took him to see Arsenal. And you know what I did? Like, I thought I've got zero interest in this, but he's got his mates with him, so it's fine. So I'll just sit down and read like a magazine. I'm not joking. I took Vogue. This is is how crazy I was. And I I didn't know what was going to happen and within five minutes I was standing on the chairs like chanting right 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 like with everybody else it was the best best thing I'd ever seen so yeah oh I'm glad you brought that up those memories have come back (laughs) I love that idea of being like I've got a hybrid I'll just take a copy of Vogue see what's going on in Milan this week that's incredible Yeah, listen, well, if you work in fashion PR, that's how up yourself you get when you're 20 years old, right? Now, we're going to be focusing on all of the protests and the uprisings that were happening last summer. Mm. And we're moving on from representation to to talk about your work. And But before we go into that, I just kind of wanted to get an idea of what your usual working pattern was like. You're an arts and culture correspondent for The Guardian. So before the pandemic and before the uprisings of of 2020, I wondered how you worked, what your normal working pattern was like. And then did your writing schedule change due to what was happening around you, particularly with the protests? A lot of people's routine was uprooted because of what we were seeing in the streets and, and how big that movement became. But for me, like before the pandemic and before everything we've seen this year, my usual working practice or reading a lot. So kind of seeing what um, the kind of general news pattern, what are the biggest stories of the day, what are the Today program leading with, um, which is kind of, you know, classic stuff that British journalists do. And then for me, I have a very extensive RSS feed. And then coming up with the ideas for the day based on that and also like things that I've been sent in the week. So, you know, PRs might get in touch, contacts mm. might have been in touch. I might have a little lead on a story that I want to follow up. And then the day starts with me sending a list through to the news desk and the news editors and you know they have a look and they decide what they want to cover so it's there's a kind of like a little bargaining session that happens and then i find out what i'm doing in the day from that and then i go off and i write my stories and that's basically how the pattern works and then when kind of covid hit and stuff obviously that that changed the way you work because you were no longer in the office it became a it's 
a bit more insular so everything's done virtually. So when the first hints were coming through that protests were happening following George Floyd's murder, and mm. I know that you write about arts, but were you, was the focus moving towards like more on um, art activism or the work of black artists who were commenting on what was happening through their work? Was there a shift in what you were asked to cover in that respect? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I think for me personally, I spent like three years in America uh, between 2014 and 2017. I was working for The Guardian as well, again, covering culture ostensibly. But then I also did some other stuff around race and wrote on that. So the George Floyd stuff, when that was all kicking off, we were obviously covering it. But you know, I remember looking at looking at what was going on and thinking like, this is this is going to be big. Just with everything that's been in the air, the fact that there'd been Black Lives Matter protests dating back to 2014, it was obvious it was going to be big in America. And obviously the video itself, which I've actually never watched, but you know, it, it was a sustained trauma that people were seeing. And you know, when something like that happens, it had the potential for it to really, really spill over into something else. I remember saying to people, that's going to come here and asking editors, you know, should we prepare something? Should we do something? And essentially I was one of the people who pushed for us to do a kind of special G2 kind of pull out on race relations in the UK, focusing on the UK and Black Britain, because mm. it was obvious I went to some of the protests and it was obvious that, you know, people were bringing up all kinds of historical issues and contemporary issues that Black British people were feeling, whether you're looking at it from a colonial perspective or through a policing perspective and stuff like Section 60 and some of the stop and search figures that we've been seeing. Mm. Britain is, it has its own acute and kind of very, very particular problem with race and we're mm. not talking about it. So this needs to be discussed. So that that was something that I, I remember being like really acutely aware of that. And I remember a weekend of just emailing another editor who works on G2 called Hummer Kaleli. And she, mm. was the, she was the editor who really pushed it through, along with Kira Cochran, who's the editor of G2, and Kath Viner, who's the, the Guardian's editor. I emailed both of those guys and said, look, I really think we we need to be doing something specifically British on this. And I think that was the right instinct because... You know, everything that we saw after, you know, whether the protest in, in the UK or the coverage in, in UK newspapers and media, I think it showed that there was there was a kind of lack of understanding from yeah. one side of the one side of the argument and also a real thirst from uh, you know, especially black people in this country, but also people of colour like across the board in this country to to have this conversation because we're just not doing it. You know, the conversation in this country just you know, it begins, you know, it's just like we'll get one person usually like Lenny Henry or someone who's been around for ages and I'm not knocking Lenny Henry. There'll be a person who mm. like Lenny Henry is a big famous celebrity and he'll be the voice of all these black people. And that's how yeah, we yeah, yeah. race. And let's have a discussion about it. And, you know, it's better yeah. than it was. And, you know, is there any, is there really an issue here? And it's like, yeah, there's an issue. Like, <laughs> yes, let's discuss it. Let's really get into it. And that's what we tried to do with that race special. Yeah. So we looked at, you know, deaths in police custody why no one's been charged since 1969. Uh, officers have been charged since 1969, even though there's been 1,700 deaths since 1990. We looked at education system. We looked at stop and search. Yeah, we looked at the arts. We looked at all kinds of things. So I was really, really proud of that. We managed to pull it off quite quickly. I think that set set the tone for some of our coverage. So yeah, basically, I went outside of my usual purview and like started pushing on that side of it and just saying, like, I think we need to do something significant on this now to mark mm. this moment and also set the tone for the rest of our coverage so yeah it was it was a pretty exhausting emotional time to be honest with you 
Well, exactly. And big up to all of you for for doing that. But some of the resulting conversations from some of the things that we saw in the press um, made me realise how divided the country was, not in terms of whether they believe racism exists or not, but in terms of their actual understanding of, of what is happening. And it's interesting to me that you moved out of your usual remit of work. I'm really interested in images that were coming out in terms of the discussions that they spark one of the images that will be remembered by so many people from that time from the UK was the Patrick Hutchinson image so it really shone a light on the colonial tropes that were being rolled out by so many when they saw saw that image you know but I was just surprised at just like how idiotic some of the chat was that came out. And, you know, I'm nearly 50 years old, so I've read a lot of newspapers and seen a lot of things, but I was actually shocked at like the level of, well, the lack of understanding of from all of us as a country in, in general. And I just wondered what it was like for you personally, but also as a cultural culture writer. I think you've got to remember like the level of sophistication when it comes to uh, the race conversation in this country is so low. Yeah. It's so basic. It's so entry level. When people, things like they've never for once like countenanced or even thought that there's an issue in this country. And then, you know, I think that takes us back to like this idea of, you know, decolonizing the curriculum or whichever phrase you want to phrase you want to use when it comes to education, but basically broadening that remit and making sure that we understand our own history. Because when you don't have that, like, for example, when you don't know that there was a Bristol bus boycott that happened mm. in this country. And you're constantly told about, you know, uh, other people in, in the United States and what they did and Rosa Parks. Th- mm. That just disconnects you from, from the history of your own country. So there's going to be an ignorance there from, mm-hmm. from white people and from other groups. So then when you're talking about it and saying, you know, there's been, there's an issue in this country. We're not, we, we've never really gone back and discussed some of the things that have happened. Like we, we've just done a lot of stuff on, uh, on the Mangrove 9 case because of mm-hmm. the Steve McQueen film and the, and the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And like, that's if you go back and look at that case, the stuff that was going on was so shocking. It happened fifty years ago, yet you know people from that generation are still being deported through the Windrush scandal. You know yeah, that, yeah. that if you knew about the history of the Mangrove Nine and what those people went through and the victory they were supposed to have have, have created, you know Windrush is completely unconscionable. You can't believe that those same people would then be deported to go die in Grenada and Jamaica and all these other places that are being censored. So it's it's really important that we kind of have that understanding. And I suppose the other point, you know, I remember when I saw that image of, of Patrick leading, you know, carrying that man off. Amid the clashes between police and protesters in London yesterday, there was one image that stood out. A white man had been surrounded and gone to ground. It was absolute mayhem around this, this man, and you couldn't even see where he was. It just felt as if that was a real turning point for the British press. That this image, this kind of iconic image, had kind of ticked a box for them, which was like, Oh yeah, we've, we've dealt with it. We've dealt with this problem now because this really gracious, brave black person has literally carried away our problem. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, this image, which has been shared around the world, shows Patrick Hutchinson. Personal trainer Patrick Hutchinson carrying on an injured white counter demonstrator to safety. Mr. Hutchinson has been praised by MPs as representing the best of human behaviour, and we are delighted to say that he joins us now. I reached out to Patrick and I asked for his own thoughts on the photo. Here's what he said. I feel that the response from the press has been a very positive one. And to be honest, I haven't seen any negative portrayal of me or my friends in the mainstream media. Within the black community, I would suggest that 80% of us were quite pleased that for once the portrayal of black men in the mainstream media was a positive one. 
The other 20% were tired of us uh, always having to take the moral high ground. I still feel it was the right thing to do and have said on many occasions that I'd do it again. I've been pleasantly surprised by the notoriety I've received and it goes to show that good things can still make good press. It's not always about controversy selling. At its very basic level, it's just one human being helping another. There were racists in Trafalgar Square or whatever the hell they were trying yeah. to fight with people in Britain in 2020. You know, it do, like that's the kind of most extreme manifestation of British racism. And I actually think that's the kind of British racism that people are happy with because they can point at that and go, we're not like them. We're not skinheads. We're not fascists. What really kind of gets at you is that kind of British, insidious, polite racism where, you know what, you're not getting that job. You know what? You're not getting that funding. You know what? You're we. You're not one of us. You know, there's issue of class, there's issue of race, there's all these things that in Britain are so specific, but they're not as. It's the issue isn't you know skinheads walking down the street in bomber jackets trying to kick you in. Although there is that kind of physical threat, it's something else in this country, and I think that's what that picture. When you really kind of break it down, that's what that's why that picture was latched onto by so many people who wanted it to be finished. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find that the conversations that you were having within with your work colleagues shifted? Was there a shift in an awareness after you did the initial, you know, we need to do this work, we want to uh, focus on on race and we, and we need to do it. And they took that on board. The conversations that we're have, having with our family and friends and online and just within our own um, community, were those playing out with colleagues as well? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, as a as a black British journalist, we were looking at what was going on in the States with uh, publications like the New York Times. They were having this kind of big internal bust up about the fact that they had a, a Republican senator writing for them. I don't remember that op-ed piece by Tom Cotton, um, oh, yes. which which really kicked off and it started this debate within their uh, ranks, uh, which ended with the, you know, the comment editor going. You had the Washington yeah. Post, which uh, you know, hired, I think, 12 new hires they made to try and address racial inequality within the publication. There were several other schemes that were started. NPR did a big thing. And, you know, that was definitely in the air. We were, it wasn't just discussing how we're going to cover race and racism in the UK because we're well-versed in that and we know how to do that. It was also a bigger conversation, which was like, what's our own internal culture like? What's, what, where are we at? Are we happy with the way things are? Because this is a, this is a massive moment. You know, Britain, yeah. Britain in all these big institutions that are at crossroads, whether it's big art institutions like TIP, uh, take modern and take Britain saying we need to look at our own internal culture or whether it's you know ITV coming up and you know they, they've announced this big fairly impressive looking uh, reforms within their ranks so yeah, we yeah. were having those conversations internally at the Guardian and, and the Observer we started our own group called the Guardian Observer People of Colour group which was kind of a, an evolution of something that had been there for a long time and Joseph Harker uh, who's a you know one of the comment editors there who you know is a you know, it's kind of like a father figure to a lot of us at the Guardian. He he started that many many years ago when it was kind of a place where people could come and discuss issues. This was slightly more formal, and you know, we we were having discussions internally with senior managers about what we thought potentially needed to change, and they were ultimately you know quite fruitful. And you know, we're still in those discussions now. So it's it's yeah, it definitely shifted things in terms of our perspective, not just in how we're covering stuff, but how things work internally and who's making decisions and 
you know, how those decisions are made and who's controlling budgets and who's saying, you know, what's important and what isn't, you know, all these conversations that, you know, I think every British journalist um, should be having at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. How representative do you think that the UK press is of, of our society at the moment in terms of, you know, who's working on the teams in, in all positions? Is, is the representation better than it was when you first started working for The Guardian? I mean, it's better than, it's better than when I started. Uh, yeah. I do remember doing work experience. I was 21, I think, and I came down to The Guardian. They were in the old, it was the Farringdon Road site. Yeah, um, yeah. The old place down there. And yeah. I went in, I was so excited. I was naive. I was pretty wet behind the ears. Like I'd got the Scott Trust bursary, um, which is a which is a bursary aimed at people from, you know, underrepresented groups in media, whether that be, you know, from working class backgrounds or ethnic my, minorities or both in my case. And yeah, I kind of walked in and I was, I was pretty excited. And I remember getting in there and, and being really shocked at how, you know, there were hardly any people of colour I remember thinking going down into the canteen and you know thinking bloody there's more there's more black people working here than there are on the on the news desk floor. Yeah, yeah. I do that. Yeah. I don't know if you do it, Lou, but like when of I walk course. when I walk into a space, I make a mental note of like, all right, where where are my people here? Like, where's where are the, where are the crew? Like, where's where are the people who you know look a bit like me or sound a bit like me? And you know, because you want you want that, you want to feel as if you are kind of represented. Yeah. For me, like the reason why I wanted to be at the Guardian was because like Gary Young was there. You know, and like yeah. Gary is like the guy. Exactly, <laughs> like the exactly. Absolute, is the absolute don still, and like well, yeah. he literally is a don now, isn't he? He's up at Manchester exactly. being a professor, but he, yeah, he just it matters that recognition. And when I got in there, I remember just I remember finishing that first stint of work experience and going and speaking to my my parents and just being like, you know what, I don't know if this is for me. You know, like being like, I just I'm not like these people. Like I'm not. I've got a str- quite a strong Northern accent. I didn't go yeah. to Cambridge or Oxford. I didn't go to private school. I mean, the stats in British media talk for themselves. 51% of journal- British journalists went to private school. That's mad. I think it's 94% of British journalists are white. In a city, when you're talking about a city like London, which is more than 40% ethnically diverse, those stats are, are shocking. And obviously, yes, British media is a lot more than, than London. So much of it is centered down here. So I have those stats still now in 2020. It tells you a story. It's, there's loads of issues as to why we've got there. You know, there's a kind of weird, like ad hoc, informal way that people are recruited. There's still a lot of nepotism, and a lot of places only just started to be committed to being diverse now after the process and everything we've seen this year. You know, uh, that seems to have shifted the needle for a few places, but quite a few are just not interested in it. And it's, I think, it makes the British media a lot. It makes it a lot weaker. It could be. It could be a lot more. It could be a lot stronger on these issues of race. But just in general, you know, it'd be it'd be a much better place and a much healthier place if the editors who are deciding what a headline is that not all just from the same background. It's not just diversity in British media. It's this idea of equality. That's the thing that's important because diversity. Mm. You can end up in a situation where it's just this kind of like box ticking exercise where people think they've done the right thing by hiring mm. one person and sticking them in a position. Yeah, that's exactly. Meaningless unless they've got power. Unless they've got support unless they're controlling their own budget, unless they're able to actually make changes and make sure they're not undermined by colleagues who don't, you know, don't agree with them being in there in the first place. Mm. You know, I've seen all these things in my time in media and people are kind of sick of it now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, yeah, a hire doesn't really make any difference. It's the environment in which they are working. I remember hearing Gary speaking on another podcast recently, and he was saying, you know, he's he's kind of my age, and he was saying, um, you know, the thing is, what comes with people of our age is the experience. We've seen how racism has changed within this country and how the structures have changed. Whereas the the young people who are aware are coming in they have observations awareness savvy and things that that we couldn't possibly have because yeah. they're of a different generation and they're seeing things completely differently and that balance is really important and that mix of young and old is really interesting that you brought up because we had that at the uh with the guardian observer people of color group like you had people like joseph who's been there for decades you know mm. having these difficult conversations when they were not popular you know there was a time when people did not want to hear about that um, yeah. and he was still sticking his neck out, still saying it. And you've got, you've got younger people coming in. I think they're much more well-versed than even I was, you know, being born in like 1984. And it's amazing to be around. And that, that, that really brought a lot of energy to, for me and for other people, like this feeling of a collectively, we're going to try and push for something. We're going to try and make this change now on our watch. And we're going to collectively do it. Um, that was really important. It goes back to what we were talking about there when I first walked into the Guardian and I looked around and I just thought, wow, man, I don't think that's, this is for me. Whereas if I think I was a young person walking in now, look, things are not perfect, but you're going to have, there's so many more people around you who look like you, who might think like you, who sound like you. You don't feel as much as an outsider. You know, I think in 20 years time, when we look back at this time, we'll be like, why did it take so long? Because people are having these conversations literally 50 years ago. You know, darkest well, hour yeah. and all those people, they were out there saying this stuff and asking people those same questions. And, and you know, at that time, they were ignored for decades. And all of those activists who did so much were asking that question, why has it taken so long then? We're still asking it now. And mm. I remember seeing all those clips of James Baldwin that were circulating in the summer as well when he was just going, you know, my mother said and my grandmother said, you know, mm. we're going to be the ones that can change this. And here we still are. But, you know, they, things are changing and this... This takes me on to what I want to sort of end with. 2020 was a lot in terms of the work that we collectively did. All of those conversations that you've talked about earlier that you were having, you know, that's an emotional load to carry in. And I just wonder what light you see in this long road that we've all been on. Well, actually, what road are you on and and where do you hope that it takes you um, following everything that's happened last summer? Yeah, I've definitely had big ups and downs on, on this one in terms of like where I'm at with it and, and whether I'm feeling positive or negative. I remember after we did that, the Race in Britain special, just feeling so like completely exhausted because it takes a lot out of you to think about these things and emotionally, right at the height of that, I interviewed Angela Davis. And mm. you know, speaking of Angela Davis, you know, I asked her the same question, you know, like how, well, I asked her a question of like, how do you keep, going and how what do you think and she was saying well look you know 50 60 years ago when when she was out doing her stuff they never thought there could be a worldwide protest movement where like literally millions of people all over the world were out in the street because a black man was killed in america like they couldn't imagine that um and she said you know you've got to be the you've got to be a master of imagination you've got to be able to imagine the the future you want to live in and push for it and try to make it happen and that really stuck with me because she's been saying that line for absolutely years, but the idea of, of someone like her who's seen so much, so many false dawns, she's still able to kind of latch onto the, the positives, focus on them and look at the progress that has been made. Not in a kind of like 
rose tinted are we there now let's all move on but like you can make a difference you are making a difference and yeah the change that you really want which is which is for us to live in a period where equality is something that is like baked into the the kind of fabric of this society that we live in yeah we're not there but we have come a long way as well and that's through the hard work of all the people that we just kind of discussed then whether it's darkest or you know or Theo jones like one or whoever it is they've push for that and we're we're building on their legacy and i think it's really important to remember that to realize that you're not by yourself you're part of this incredible lineage and you know to be person of color in this country whether you're south asian black nigerian Ghanaian, jamaican it doesn't matter the thing about your people and why you're still here is because they didn't give up remember that having that book in my house staying power you know the kind of classic black british history book and like that's what it's about because ultimately you know, there isn't an argument against it. Like, what's the argument against wanting equality in this country? It's racism. I think it's about collectively keeping ourselves energised. I think trying not to take on too much yourself. I remember in the summer, I, mean, I think I sent a tweet out and someone who I, <laughs> someone who I know from Bradford who I've known a long time who, you know, I grew up with who's a bit older than me was just like, you are right. Like, always remember, you know, you, you can't do it all yourself. And that might be a really simple obvious thing to say but it actually did make a big impact i was able to just kind of think you know what you're doing good work like that's the most important thing that really resonates thank you so much for that we both like a chat don't we yeah it's fine it's uh, it's my pleasure really genuinely And now for part two with Kerry Robinson, Head of Education at the South London Gallery. Kerry shares her thoughts on what needs to change in discussions surrounding race in education and in art. So here we go, part two. Enjoy. Before we launch into the image itself and how it resonated with people, I was just really interested in the language and the labelling that was used by the media mostly to discuss the two main subjects, um, and that was Patrick, who was described as a Black Lives Matter protester. And there was the other subject, which was a a guy called Bryn Mail, and he was described as a counter-protester. Well, actually, we know that a counter-protester in that context means that he was actually there to derail, in some way, the Black Lives Matter protesters. And so many people would have their own language in their own homes or in their own social circles to describe the behaviour of that man. But no one would use any language that would be defamatory in any way. So maybe that's why we perhaps wouldn't label him a racist. And I just wondered what you thought about the language that was used around that image. I did end up speaking to a primary school teacher about this, the Black Lives Matter protests more generally. And she'd been talking about how children in the class had been looking at TikTok and had been viewing the the actual moment of death of George Floyd and had been calling the events surrounding it uh, riots. And she was talking to me about how she was struggling to speak in a more useful way about what was happening. So I found that quite intriguing that um, the sort of eight, nine-year-olds were on TikTok saying, look, there's a riot and our associations with rioting being so, you know, negative and this, that actually there was a sort of legitimate protest and that was being erased in the, sort of flattened in the language and that 
to, for her to start to try and speak to children around you know what's the difference between a riot and a protest and it's actually quite difficult to do so you know this idea that we see something and the language is embed you know we we bring assumptions that are embedded in language to that picture and so that's i mean people don't like to talk about racism or to see themselves as racist and racism is you know is bad and anti-racism is good we feel generally feel that we have the objectivity to make difference between those see ourselves generally as anti-racist or not racist so if, if our own sentiments veer in any way close to the issues that we're talking about for example perhaps we don't think damaging statues is right or we love Winston Churchill and we don't think he was a racist then people feel justified in their beliefs and they don't recognize them as a form of racism and so to see yourself or aspects of yourself being called racist is very challenging I would imagine so mm. Yeah, I think language is really is really important and very well crafted by the media and the popular press, and often done un- unconsciously or unthinkingly. Uh, and the impact of it can be just as I was kind of trying to get to with the, the primary children, primary school children. You know that you're kind of in, absorbing cultural constructs through language, and as you speak and what you speak about and how you articulate it from a really young age and um, then it's hard, hard to undo that later on, which is probably why people are calling Bryn male a counter-protester and not a racist. Mm. That's really interesting. You're talking about the the constructs of in which we use language. The press were describing Patrick as heroic. Some say that he was placed in a subservient role for, for doing that, which made lots of people within the community uncomfortable because it resonated with colonial tropes. And I just wonder how the the difference in those two discussions, probably from the black community and the white community, I think there was quite a a divide in terms of their response to, to that image. And I just wondered, what does it show us about where we are in terms of discussions on racism in this country? We're culturally invested in the process of uncovering difference between people based on the visual. So this photo, for example, for me, it really reveals how uh, the sort of corporeal and the, and the visual intersect and produce an expectation in the white imagination. So attributes that might seem natural, su- such as, you know, the voice and its qualities or the musculature of this, uh, this sort of heroic figure, at the same time, they're bound up in, in this gentleman's blackness. So it's important to us as, as witnesses, should we say, when we think about this um, idea of it's reinscribing the colonial idea that people of colour are there to serve. I'm sure a lot of things that are in the white imagination are and are articulated are hard to kind of refute or address. And that, again, is all to do with language and power dynamics that are sort of inherent in the language we use. So, I mean, I'm interested, I guess, in how we start to change the rules of engagement with the visual world, Mm. visual cultures. And I can't remember who it was, and I'm probably mangling it, but somebody who talks about the tyranny of the image and the tyranny and and spectacle. How do we renegotiate the spectacle? I was going to mention a a young fashion designer called Thomas Harvey, who has talked, I mean, in your question, you talk about the resonance of historical paintings and the drama in this photo. And I was chatting to an art historian and a fashion designer, Thomas Harvey, and he's a young black designer. And he talks about how disciplines such as, I don't know, European philosophy, art history, economics, 
they have very conventional and journalism often as well not so much now very conventional and conservative approaches and these disciplines also come with status and privilege which are the and those are the things that are devalued in black people so there's assumptions around class and ability and interests those are ascribed to, to us by white systems of knowledge and so for thomas harvey exploring how black bodies have been represented in the past is really important and has informed how he works but um he talks about how bodies have been represented in the past and that's really that pe- that sort of research is very important for him that informs how he works and how he views the work of others so in this discussion with Thomas and myself, we were talking to art, an art historian called Elizabeth Gatesco, who's written a book about decolonizing fashion. And we were ex- looking at uh, 18th century por- portraits in relation to Thomas's designs and his the shoots that he was about to embark on for his collection. And Elizabeth was talking about how this 18th century portrait, it was by Thomas Gainsborough, so it's kind of 17. 17- 60 something and there's a guy standing next to a sort of neoclassical pillar you can see these kind of palm trees in the background these rolling hills so this idea of constructing identity of a white wealthy male through the symbols the power wealth and knowledge that is um sort of reinforces the status of that person through the painting and i see this um reflected today in many of the uh, conversations and images that we have on a day-to-day basis. But at this point, we're talking about ethnicity and um, bringing ideas about our assumptions and ideas about ethnicity are brought to bear in that same sort of uh, deconstruction of the image. So, you know, ethnicity is quite situational in a sense. It depends who you're with and where you are. And that construction of our identities through the body, it's it involves both insiders and outsiders. So an idea of national identity, should we say, or blackness or whiteness involves both sides of the debate because one is not the other or is, you know, or is in relation to the other or in counter relation to the other as as we have here. So I don't know if you're familiar with, I, I don't really know his work, but I wanted to bring up this example of Richard J. Powell, who's a professor of art and art history at Duke. I don't know if he's still there, but no, I don't know. No, I don't know that as well. He uses the phrase um, "cutting the figure." So Elizabeth Catesco meant, was mentioned him in our conversation. So he specifically talks about black portraiture and against the paradigm of modern portraiture, examines the relationship that's established between the subject and the author of the image, rather than the subject and the viewer. So that the social capital of black representation is questioned by Richard J. Powell, and he explores the way that fashion and pose in the body can display resistance or agency. And he uses Grace Jones as an example of her album covers. For part of some work I was doing, I'd asked young art history graduate Isaac Huxtable to, if he wanted to write a blog post, and he chose to write about photojournalism and race and the ways that, you know, images are, such as this one, for example, these kind of images that it talks about going viral and it's monetized and it goes viral and it's, it's sort of, um, it's for the white gaze. So yeah. Isaac Hux, Huxtable talked about World Press Photo Report in 2018. And out of 5,202 global professional news photographers that responded, only 1.4% identified as black. Right. So Isaac's blog post talks about what it's like to be black. <laughs> and this is the same, this is what Isaac talks about, that black suffering has always been on display. It's marketable. It always has been black trauma, 
and justice. You know, we want to hear those stories. So this hero image taps into just another colonial trope or philosophy around subservience, as you were saying, and the kind of uh, the role of the black person to serve. Isaac Huxtable talks about for a um, white photojournalist, how they treat the photo, what he crops, you know, what's left in, what takes out, what's taken out, what the caption is, how the image is colour corrected. It stains the craft with bias, he says. You know, so all of the images going around from this last few months of, you know, trauma and displays of black violence against black bodies, only 1.4% of those documentarians possibly are black. Um, And that must skew how these images are treated and understood. Mm, Absolutely. And thank you for that and for the references to the other uh, people that you mentioned there. So I'm going to do some more digging into their work and I will link information into the show notes because that was fascinating. I just want to round up by thinking about photography's role in changing the wider narrative surrounding race and how this would look practically, that after all of this has happened, I just wonder what light you see in this journey that we're all on together, that representation is improving, the narratives are becoming more honest, and that there is light on this road towards equal rights that that we're all on. One of the last comments in Isaac's blog post is around, he he says he doesn't think the solution to the problem is is employing black photographers to, to document black trauma and injustice. So, um, and that it's around viewing the photo. Uh, It's still just somebody telling a story and it's about viewing uh, the photograph as a document. So actually, for me, it's a little bit about what what we're bringing to that image. And that's where I I feel that some work needs to be done. And a a lot is, you know, being explored. We do bring our assumptions around blackness to images, but also to the sonic realm. So I'm quite interested in, in sort of thinking more broadly about, you know, educating ourselves in kind of listening to culture as well as looking at culture and trying to challenge our, our own assumptions. And, um, you know, we, we hear so many cases of institutions so keen and um, to diversify and the, the sort of the, the problems they have in, in, in doing that effectively. And it kind of problematizes difference as opposed to institutional systemic inequality. So I'm interested in how we can maybe engage in those conversations that are happening at art school, in the gallery, in the museum, in the cultural sector, but bring more to those conversations that it's not just a sort of black-white binary, it's not just a sort of good, bad, right, wrong, but it's around uh, having a broader understanding of, uh, uh, you know, the lexicon, widening the lexicon, having uh, more voices and uh, more intelligence really around challenging the assumptions about where we are and what we're doing. I will just quickly, if if it's all right with you, talk about some work I did some while ago around the voice and black voice. And when people hear a a voice, they conjure a body. We're on the phone to each other. I've never met you. Your voice is telling me. I'm bringing assumptions about who you, what your body is. I was going to say that when people hear a certain voice and they might conjure a black body, for example, um, and that bo- that black body in your mind is imbued with cultural references and stereotypes. Um, so we're sort of managing difference through voice or the sonic realm as well. So we talk about black voice. Is there such a thing as a black voice? As powerful, soulful, 
there is no such thing as a black void. We're sort of thinking about an image that, that produces a sonic expectation in the listener, going back to what I was saying earlier about how the specular and the corporeal intersect to produce an expectation in the white imagination, but also in the ear of the listener. So there's an artist, African-American artist called Mendy Oberdyke, and she coined the phrase sonic stereotype, where you might, so if there's, her example is, if there's a film called Boiler Room, um, and it, there's a scene where it's, there are no black people in the scene, but there's, a, there's some planning going on about a, some, a criminal act that they're going to perform. The, the soundtrack is a gangster rap tune. And Mendy Oberdyke talks about how, you know, um, the sonic realm is used, is sort of, brought in to signify criminality, danger, impoverishment, you know, flagrant disregard for life, those sorts of things. So we see this again, there's an advert for a Volkswagen Tiguan or something like that. And the, the cool dad with the, with the gangster rap driving. So I, I'm interested, quite interested in how we recruit or um, imbue or bring our sort of colonial philosophies to the body through sound. One last example, Nina Eichheim, she's a vocal pedagogue again in the US. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how people think they can hear blackness and that we have an assumption that the presence of a body must imply the body that produced it. And this is why there's so much excitement when a white body produces what we imagine is a black voice. So, for example, I don't know, mm. Amy Winehouse, Dusty Springfield, yeah. Rick Astley, people like yeah. that. Dusty yeah. Springfield was known as the white negress. Yeah. Um, so you can't physically hear a tam- timbre in a voice, but people do think they can hear a black voice and they know what it sounds like. So the voice and the body are put into direct relationship with one another. And we believe in racial differences and we enact that in sound. So I'm, I'm interested in, in some of those areas of scholarship coming quite predominantly from the US rather than the UK. Mm, that's um, so interesting. And mm. that's a perspective that we rarely consider, the voice of blackness, even though, like you say, we talk of it all the time. And that is just such a, an interesting perspective. And thank you so much. Hey, it's Lou, and I have a quick thought on this conversation that I'd like to share with you before we round up. The term that Kerry used, staining the image with bias, to me resonates with what she and Alain Ray both said about the context in which we read images, which is based on our education, our social conditioning, the levels of commissioning power involved in who publishes the images, and the prevailing traditions of interpretation. Staining the image with bias is the kind of idea that you hold in your mind as you survey your media environment. It makes me think that looking at an image is an opportunity to examine what your own culture has been telling you, sometimes for the better and sometimes not. If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on and consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast. 
Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Menser, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Be sure to listen to C.A.'s own brilliant show called A Lato Thought. I'll let C.A. tell you a little bit about that now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is C.A. Davis. And this is A Lotto Thought, an immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy. The hypo-descent rule became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. But people are not mixed. History is mixed. In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation join at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true. Some multiracial people say, yes, they are Black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom. So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich, sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at L-A-T-T-O underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.